Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullos. This week on Gangry the Podcast, I talk with Jean Marie Laskus. Laskus is the director of the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. She also writes long form journalism for GQ magazine. She's also been published in Esquire, The Washington Post Magazine, The New York Times Magazine, and many other publications. She's been anthologized in Best American Magazine Writing, as well as Best American Sports Writing, where her work has been recognized six times. Laskus has also written six books. Most recently, she published Hidden America. That book explores the unseen people who make this country work. Today, we'll talk about her recent profile of Vice President Joe Biden. We'll also talk about her story, Game Brain, which was published in GQ in October of 2009. That was one of the first in-depth looks at traumatic brain injuries in professional football players. Jean-Marie, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the Joe Biden piece? Uh, it was published in July, uh, the July issue of GQ, um, earlier this year. Uh, I'm really curious about how that piece just came about. <laughs> how did it come about? I think it was one of those situations where you're chatting with your beloved editor, in this case, Mike Benoit at GQ, and, um, <laughs> you know, who are we interested in? Who Who are we interested in? Who... Who's like right underneath our noses who we think we know, but we probably don't. And just Joe Biden popped in. We were both like, yeah, Joe Biden. That's it. Honestly, God, it was that, it was that not complicated an idea. And then (laughs) how do you, so I imagine that would be really, you know, yeah, let's write about Joe Biden. um, But he's also the vice president of the United States. So how do you go about actually getting him to even give you the access that you ended up having with him? Well, yes, of course, that's the whole issue because um, I like to write about characters. I like to write usually about people that nobody ever heard of, you know, like coal miners and just just folks. Um, and the idea for this was like, let's, of all the people, wouldn't Joe Mi- Biden be just a guy, you know, underneath it all? Like, it just seemed like surely we could get to just the guy. But then it did keep coming up that he was the vice president of the United States. That was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, this is going to be an obstacle. Um, so basically, you know, I, I formed a a nice relationship with the White House, um, explaining what my idea was. And they liked the idea, but, of course, they're used to dealing with a press corps, so you get lumped in with a press corps for about, you know, a long time. Um, and you kind of need to earn the trust of, of people. So I, I, I spend a lot of time on stories, like a lot of time in research. And in this case, the time was on doing a lot of stuff that probably wasn't going to end up being in the story. And in fact, it wasn't. Um, it was only when we I finally got him to agree. Well, I don't even know whose idea it was, but it was like, let's go to Wilmington. And that's where the whole story sort of opened up, spending just one-on-one time with him in his home. His hometown. How much time did you have to spend with kind of doing that that kind of background work to kind of gain 
the trust of, of Joe Biden. But, uh, and it was really, in this case, normally it would just be the trust of the, per- of the person you're writing about, but in this case it was the whole team of people, you know, who are positioning him in a certain way. So it, it was months, I mean, on and off for months. I would just sort of drive down to Washington and go to a, you know, some event he was having at his house. But, you know, I'm in the press pool. I'm behind the rope with everybody else, you know, just sort of standing there. It was absorbing, you know, watching. Nothing to write about, though, really, truly, in those moments. And you think, huh, okay, am I going to, what am I going to write? I mean, I had nothing to write about for all that time. Mm-hmm. But I, it doesn't really discourage me if I think that it's all going to end up somewhere, you know. And in this case, I mean, I went to Rome with them to the Pope's inauguration, you know. Like, I just went to a lot of places. But, it, but honestly, Wilmington ended up being the most interesting. Yeah, can you talk about um, there's the one scene uh, early in the story where you're at the cemetery. And mm. I think that's a really striking scene. Can you talk a little bit about how that unfolded and, and what that was like, I guess, to kind of witness yeah, that was interesting because it was right at the beginning of our little trip through memory lane in Wilmington there where we were in the motorcade and I was sitting next to him. And this is the closest I'd ever gotten to him, really. I don't mean physically. I mean just sort of like chatty-wise. Up to that point, everything had been a um, kind of you know set-up interview with 15 tape recorders going everywhere because the White House is part of it and everybody's part of it and everybody's staring at everybody and it's all very, you know you know, buttoned up. And so this is when we're finally meeting in Wilmington and I had no agenda. I just wanted him to, I just wanted him to take me where he wanted to go. And so the first place he went was there, was to the cemetery. And he really wanted to show me this church, which I thought we were going to see this church. Um, He's very enthusiastic, you know, you got to see this, you know, walking me in the church, this is where so-and-so got married, this, this tiny little church. And then there was the cemetery around it. And then he started talking about who was buried in the cemetery. So it came like that, really organically out of the moment. Now, whether he had intended to show me that very spot, I don't know, but it certainly was a, um, a real quiet moment of, like, whoa, we're here where his wife was buried. Whoa, we're here where his daughter was buried. Oh, okay. This is, you know, and he didn't want to go over there. He didn't want to go over to the grave. So you felt, you know, just brought me into it. Brought me into his mind and his heart in a way that I had not been. The uh, the pace of the story, especially in that early in that early part, is like almost frantic. Mm. uh, I think, uh, and I'm assuming you did that on purpose because I'm assuming that's probably what it was like on that kind of that day with him. Oh yeah. I'm trying to, I think, hammer the reader with the same kind of hammered feeling I got, um, where, you know, you are being taken on a ride. There, there is no chance to ask why are we going anywhere or what's going on? I mean, you are being, it, it feels like, you know, he's yanking you around. And so that's kind of like, I guess in the prose, you're sort of mimicking that, Mm, that pace. Yeah. Um, the uh, Have you written about other politicians before, and has it been that frantic as well? I don't do – I don't I, – I don't really – no. Let me see if I've written any about any politicians. 
not as a rule. It's just sort of not. I don't have like a beat. It seems like <laughs> at all. It seems like I, I, politicians. It seems to me are really tough to crack and to get the personal story. I don't know. I mean, that just oh, yeah. is my you know what I get from reading most. Mo- anything that's written about a politician, it's really hard to get inside you know yeah yeah because everything needs to be manufactured and you know and i sort of understand that it needs to be especially you know at the higher higher and higher higher levels it's not a real person it's a it's just it's it isn't it can't be it's a mouthpiece for a set of policies so i'm not really very interested in um any of that the staging of it is just like the only kind of interesting part but eh, not that interesting so that's always the challenge with with um, any of those, that's why that's why they all read the same, you know, typically. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I was not interested in writing that story. Not, not, not. I wanted to write about a character. I wanted to write about, um, you know, either here's what it's like to be vice president. Like here's what the job is. I think that was our first idea. Um, but more interesting to me was like, what's it feel like to be the vice president? Were you ever worried that you weren't going to get that? Hmm. Mike and I would have a conversation as I would drive home from Washington each and every time. It was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Should we pull the plug? Oh, boy. Because <laughs> I couldn't get close enough. You know, as kind as the, the White House staff were, and they were wonderful, and I liked them so much, and I formed friendships with them, um, there was only so much they could really allow the vice president to do. Um, and then I don't not sure why finally they opened up and gave me that Wilmington day. It was only a day. It was only a day. All of that, all of that months and months of research really was about getting that day in Wilmington as, as it turned out. Have you ever had any other story? That's mostly the story. Have you ever had any other story where you've had that months of research that kind of lead to one day that makes the story? Um, I think a lot of them do because you never know well, let's say, let me back up. I never know what's going to be interesting. I never go in with a set of, to any of these stories, with a set of questions or a set of expectations even. You know, I kind of like go with this more throw yourself to the wolves feeling of, well, let's go see what this experience is like. Let's go see what it's like in a coal mine. Let's go see what it's like on an oil rig or any of these places. Um, And so... I I go in blind. I go in not knowing, and so maybe the first I spend a lot of time on these stories. I guess a lot of res- you know a lot of time researching. So you know maybe the first four times you're visiting these folks, you're you're like I mean I, I always tell like people who are just starting out, you have to be like a high capacity for boredom. This kind of work because a lot of stuff is just really boring. A lot of stuff is just waiting, 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 waiting as you become invisible in front of these people, you know, like the more longer you're there, the more invisible you become and then can start seeing the action, the real action of the world. Mm-hmm. Did um, anything surprise you in the course of reporting the story? Mm. Uh, surprised me how very, very, very difficult the press corps works. I mean, how difficult their jobs are, and how oh, how I could I could never do that job, the job that the press corps works. You know, and um, 
the, the White House press court where, where you're going and sitting in a, a motorcade van for four hours waiting for the person to come out and give a speech. Then you're sitting back in the van typing it on your BlackBerry to your editor, and that's your story. Like, I, I just, I, I would to write. <laughs> I really wouldn't. I have a clue. So I do think that that surprised me a lot, just seeing how they work. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, got I admire it. I mean, I admire anything comes out of that. Yeah, I got a taste of that when I worked at the Columbus Dispatch. I was a poll reporter when um, President Bush visited Columbus for a fundraiser. And literally, we didn't even get to go into the fundraiser. We just sat in a barn and waited for him to come back out, and then that was it. We just sat and waited and got nothing. So, uh, and they, yeah. I only had to do that once. They have to do it everywhere they go every single day, and I just couldn't imagine that. So, yeah, I, I really had never seen it that close, and that surprised me a lot. As in terms of the vice president's life, it just surprised me what a, what fun it is to to hang out with him. Right. I mean, it, I, I just, it was hilarious. It was just hilarious. Yeah, I think there's a line in there. I, one of my, I think a line uh, also towards the the, er, the beginning is just one sentence. Joe Biden does not pause. And I think <laughs> that's a great line because I think it really encapsulates him. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. No pause. No chance for you to say, wait, what? <laughs> or why are you telling me this? Because he's already on to the next thing. Um, there's uh, also that scene where he just stops at his old school. Um, uh, can you talk uh, about what that was like? Well, again, we didn't. I didn't know where we were going. You know, we're going touring through the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, we it was great because we just pull up into the driveway. This grand school, you know, Archmere Academy. It's kind of a beautiful campus. Looks like a small college, and um, he's you know, we're, I don't even know where we are. We're just getting out of the car. And then, so we just all start following. We just all start walking. And the Secret Service guys, and I thought I knew where the Secret Service guys were, but then they started more, were appearing out of nowhere, sort of swirling. I'm like, where are all these people? Where are, you know? So it's like a whole system going on. That's pretty cool. And he just walks into the campus. Nobody knew he was coming. The students are just hanging out for lunch, you know, out in the yard, out in the whatever, commons area. And they look up like, oh, Biden's here. Cool. And he's just waving, hey, hey, I used to go to school here. Hi. I mean, he was just so unannounced and just completely like just a neighbor coming to visit. And then, of course, swarms and swarms of people came around. And he just loves it. He just loves it. Loves the attention. <laughs> I mean, he loves what he does, that man. Did you get, uh, get any feedback um, from, from the vice president after the story ran? No, his um, his people. Shayla Mary is his um, um, communications director. She's wonderful. She uh, she she really liked the story and said that pretty much everyone there was happy, you know, with the portrayal. Um, even like some of his family or something like I don't know. Somebody said I really captured him, but he. The word is that that Biden will never read anything about himself, and and even Shayla's not sure she believes it, but. She, to her knowledge, she doesn't know that he read it. That's pretty. That's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you uh, that that came up in the course of that reporting that you think was interesting, or I don't know, just in terms of uh, the reporting and the writing? Um, how much time did it take you to write the story? 
Oh, gosh, a long time because I'm so slow. <laughs> um, I, I don't really remember exactly, but several weeks, certainly. And, you know, it's not that long a piece, but you go through so many dra- I go through so many drafts because I kept thinking that, you know, I had spent all this time in Rome with the Pope and Biden and all the pomp and circumstances of that and the complications and on Air Force Two and all this material. You know, you have all that and you think, well, you got to use that, and, you know, and then all, and then, you know, and then the president of this country and the president of the Brasenslav, Poland, and all these fancy pants people. So I was really overwhelmed with all that material. Like, what am I going to do with all that? Because really all I want to write about is Wilmington. And so I had many, many drafts with a lot of that stuff. And it all happened before in, in sort of chronology. Um, chronologically, it happened before I got to Wilmington. So, like, the whole half, first half of the story was all this Rome stuff and all this fancy stuff. And it was, like, irrelevant. So, you know, that's hard to cut. <laughs> and then it was just like, you know, this thing needs to start in Wilmington. And it seems like such a small idea to go that small but of course, it's the right idea. It's the for that story, for that kind of thing I was trying to capture. It's um, it's that tight shot of a real guy dealing with himself as a kid. You know, that's that's so much more interesting than all the fancy pomp and circumstance of anything. And I know it, but I couldn't convince myself of it, so I had to go through many drafts of that. Yeah, I think it's the perfect beginning. I mean, because you get the franticness and you get where he came from. And I think just him trying to get into his old house is like really telling, but also funny at the same time. Mm. Oh, yeah, I know. Isn't that hilarious that he's trying to get into his house? He's peeking in the window. We're like in his old house. We're pe- I was like, people aren't even home. He's like, yeah, it's my house. We're peeking in the friggin', you know, dining room window looking at the hutch. I'm like, I can't believe this is sort of happening with the Secret Service guys all out there. But, you know, by that point, you're so used to it, you're not even sure that that's weird. You know, not weird, but that it's unusual. You have to keep stepping back and saying, wait a second, this is the Vice President of the United States. This is unusual. Yeah, but the, but the, the other piece of that was made that story difficult was all the stuff. Here's really the, the hard part, and this is like for any writer. Because it's a known, you know, it's it's Biden it's maybe he's going to run for president, but maybe Hillary is going to, you know, step in soon. So Biden won't. And that's all anybody really in the chattering class is talking about. And the stories that are already written about Biden are all smart um, politics stories. So I feel like as a writer, I need to be one of them. You know, at first you do, like, I need to be with the cool crowd and write like that and speak to that sort of, like, question of 2016 and speak to the policy, something, 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 something. But you, because you, you do that because you're just, like, an insecure little kid, ultimately, trying to act like a grown-up, you know, in a story. So you have to go through all the layers of that until you go, you know what, I'm not that person. I'm not that writer. What is the sense of me pretending to be that writer? Like, why bother? Like, other people do that. I'm not good at that. I don't even want to be good at that. I don't have, you know, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real to me. So 
what do I have to offer that is me? And that's a character sketch, you know? So it takes a long time to fight your own shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I love that story. Um, another story, I think it might have been even, I don't know if it's one of the first stories of yours that I read, uh, was Game Brain. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but before we talk, start talking about that, you've written a lot, of, a lot about sport. You said you don't have a beat, but you tend to you tend to write about sports uh, quite a bit. Um, and uh, and you've been anthologized in Best American Sports Writing, I think what six times now. Um, what draws you to sports? Why sports? All right, this is just. I'm so happy you brought this up because it's hilarious to me. Nothing draws me about to sports. Zero. I have no interest in sports. I keep ending up in sports anthologies. Um, the reason I write about sports is because it started with in Esquire when I was there, and Andy Ward was my editor at Esquire at that time, and the idea was, since I don't know about sports, since I'm not much of a football fan, particularly, um, isn't it interesting to send someone in, to write a profile when she... Knows really very little. Has no baggage. I bring no baggage to a football story. For example, I wrote a, the first sports thing I think I ever did was writing about this big football player named Corey Stringer who has since died. Um, and Andy's idea was go write about what it feels like to be a lineman and get bashed in every single Sunday. Like that's your job. To get bashed in by these big humongous people. Like that's your job. Just go write about that experience. So I go to the Minnesota Vikings training camp. I know nothing. I don't know the coach's name. I don't know the history of the team. I don't know if this is a good team, a bad team. I know nothing. So I don't go with any – I don't even bother with the questions that a sports writer would ask because I don't even know them. So instead, that gets me right front and center with the guy, the character, the person. That's sort of the model. Um, so when I write about a sports figure, I'm writing just about a person who happens to play sports. Do you see? No, yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's why um, the sports stuff that you write is so good is because it's not necessarily a sports story. Um, it's a person story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, even uh, Glenn Stout wrote about that on a, on a Deadspin posting yesterday in terms of the stories he's looking for for Best American Sports Writing aren't necessarily sports stories, um, but they're related to sports in some way, shape, yes. or form. So I totally credit him for pulling out these kinds of stories in those anthologies. Uh, not my just, I don't mean mine, I mean all of them. I just love what he does. He gets it. Because he, he, those are the kind of sports stories I would read too. You know, like, the, uh, yeah, I think he does a fabulous job. I get that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, uh, Game Brain. Um, how, what got you on that track? Because you wrote about that in 2009. And right. we're just now starting to hear a lot of stuff, like uh, with the Frontline piece and, um, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the new book by the ESPN reporters, um, mm. uh, Liga Denial. Um, mm -hmm. We're just now, it's 2013. You wrote about it in 2009. Um, what got you on to that story and then kind of, you know, what are your thoughts of how it's developed and why it's taken so long to kind of gain momentum? Oh gosh. Okay. Let me see. I'm trying to go to try and squash this because again, this one in particular is so not the kind of story I do. Um, it really isn't. 
I mean, really, if you think about that, that ended up being almost an investigative piece. Mm -hmm. And it's really not the kind of story I do. Um, This is now, now flash forward, Andy Ward now is at GQ, and he's my editor. Um, I don't want to tell you a whole sort of boring backstory, but let's just say I'm writing about this concussion debate. That was going on at the time. It wasn't really a debate, though, when I was writing about it. It was more like a crisis, you know, like, oh, boy, football players... You know, oops, football players are getting sort of, um, you know, this is not a new story, right? Even when I was researching it back then. But, and Alan Schwartz in the New York Times had done fantastic reporting. Um, And there's this guy um, who, Chris Nowinski, who was the, um, oh, who was kind of like the PR guy for concussion-related injury, who is, you hear you hear his name a lot in conjunction with the Boston Group, who's doing a lot of research. So I was just going to do an update, just to make it, just an update. That's all I, my intention was back then, because I thought the story was already reported. So the way I wanted to do the update was I just wanted to see a brain. I wanted to get the physical just wanted to see a brain. You know, they had all these brains in Boston in these dishes, you know, that they had auto- that they had cut and sliced and found um, they were finding this disease in. And they didn't have the brain I wanted. I wanted to this guy Justin Strelzik's brain because his backstory I thought was really fascinating. So I'm like, where's the brain? And they kept saying, well, we don't have that one. I'm like, well, where is it? And they're like, well, it's in West Virginia. I'm like, why is there a brain in one? At that point, no one knew any, there was no press at all having anything to do with this original group who first cracked this case. It had, was off, it was so off the pages, I couldn't find anything about it. And I will say publicly, Chris Nowinski tried to, tried to steer me away from it. It was all then just trying to find this brain. I find this doctor in West Virginia who knows where the brain is of this dead football player who tells me about this guy, Bennett Omalu, who had discovered basically this disease in football players. And he had been squashed by the NFL, which was bad enough, oh, and repeatedly, which is, was bad enough, but then squashed sort of by the media. I don't think on purpose. But he was forgotten about. And, but it was sort of a systematic thing that was happening. And it bothered me that the guy who found the disease never really got recognized. So I went and I found him. Um, and that's what I really ended up writing about in 2009. I, 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 got, a really interest, I got really interested in this scientist's... Um, private discovery of this disease, this guy from Nigeria who doesn't understand, I mean, probably related to him, he doesn't understand football, doesn't know what football is, he's got Mike Webster's brain on a dish, and he's trying to figure out how, how Mike Webster died, and he ends up taking the brain home to his apartment to slice it and dice it and do all they do with brains to find what the secret of the, this injury was. 
And so my story was basically unraveling that narrative of this guy and this brain, slowly, step by step, step by step, unraveling it, untangling it, and, and you know, basically just telling the narrative that had been left out. That's mostly what I did in that piece. Um, and it got a lot of attention back in 2009. The congressional hearings happened shortly after that. Lots happened because of the NFL's denial of Bennett O'Malley, is the scientist's name, of his work. And the repeated attempts to silence him. Uh, that to me was and still is the story for all these NFL players. Mm -hmm. The fact that they've been duped. These old guys in particular. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I think it doesn't, it did, it, I mean, it got some attention back then, but I've seen this now since 2009 so many times. We go through this cycle and now we're in another one now because of the League of Denial stuff, which is great, which is basically, you know, telling it again. Um, in, a, in a bigger format. Um, and I think the reason that the, I think the public only wants to know so much about this. Nobody wants to stop watching football. And if you really paid attention to this stuff and really listened and really went back like I did, read that 2009 story, read it step by step and see what happened, you can't watch football anymore. So I think the public doesn't want to know i don't i don't think i don't want you i don't even want to know that's what i think yeah was it, i think it's, i think it's happening again i think the league of denial is getting great attention and already it's like mm, everybody's watching football yeah was it difficult to um was he was was um and I, i'm gonna say his name wrong um uh the neuropathologist that you focus yeah, the story on Amalu, yeah um, was he, given that he had been, you know, kind of squashed so many times, um, was it difficult to get him to talk with you at that point in time? Cause I would imagine it would get, it would be rough to be in the spotlight that often and constantly get shut down or was he more than willing to, to work with you? I think, well, you know, there was a little team, him and Julian Bales, who was the, sci the scientist in West Virginia, um, and this, and this attorney, they were all, they all knew Mike Webster. And so they were all part of that original sort of discovery. And I think when they heard that I was interested in really unraveling it and telling it, and I'm like genuinely trying to, I'm genuinely trying to figure out what the hell happened. And why isn't, why is the New York Times been leaving this guy out? Like, why is everybody leaving this guy out? I think, I think they were... Well, I remember Julian Bales said, you know what, stop asking me questions, just come to this diner in West Virginia and we'll talk. And I just showed up in this diner and that's when he sort of explained his version of the whole thing to me. And he told Bennett to talk to me and Bennett did. I think that's kind of the sequence. Mm -hmm. Um you talk about uh, writing about characters a lot, and you have a piece in, in the most recent issue of GQ that I guess you could say is about a character, um, uh, an undercover hitman. Yeah. Uh, can, I, can you talk a little bit about that story? I I don't know why, but I just thought that story was so funny. I know. Um, and so I don't know if it should that. be. I mean, you're writing about people who want to hire somebody to kill a loved one 
or mm-hmm. like not really a loved one, I guess. But but it's Death, hilarious. Murder. It's funny. I'm so glad to hear you say that because that was our reaction to it too. The material. I'm like, what well, was my reaction when I was researching it? Even with with the ATF, we were all laughing. I'm like, why are we laughing? This is terrible. But that's sort of the reaction, isn't it? It's just a weird comedy, isn't it? It it's hilarious. Um, just the whole, um, just who that character, the guy is. You know, like the from the you know who he is in real life versus who he plays, and then. And then the the character that you follow, who's trying to set up the hit, um, who is just remarkable, I think. Um, I know. Can't so. make that. You cannot make that shit up. No, no. And and I'm like, is this another one where you kind of sat down with your editor and said, "Let's think of somebody fun to write about. Maybe an undercover hitman with the ATF, or or how did that come about?" Yes, it came via. Um, it came to me from the uh, during a fact-checking experience with the ATF, and um, the woman who was helping me at the ATF started telling me about her guys. She was really proud of her agents who had done this undercover work, and started she just started unloading stories on me. And I was like, "What the what in the world are you talking about?" Um, and then they allowed me to come and um, hang out with a couple of the of the undercover guys doing hitman work. <laughs> That's it. I mean, that's all. It was like I just had to. I just had to see for myself. Yeah, it's a really funny story, and it, and I'll recommend that everybody read it. Uh, we've linked to to that story on our website, uh, along with several other stories from Jean Marie Laskus. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Um, Jean Marie, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. We've been talking to Jean Marie Laskus. Laskus is the director of the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh, but also writes for GQ. She profiled Vice President Joe Biden in July. She's also written extensively about traumatic brain injury and professional football. We've linked to several of her stories on our website, gangrythepodcast.com. Back in September, I talked with Jason Fagone, a Philadelphia-based writer. Part of our talk focused on his book Ingenious, a true story of invention, Automotive Daring, and the Race to Revive America. That book went on sale last week. Here's the segment where we talked about the reporting that went into the book. Uh, let's talk about Ingenious, um, a fantastic book with some great characters uh, in it. Um, when did you first get interested in this subject and, and take us through the process of, uh, I guess, idea to book that will be coming out on November 5th? Sure. So Ingenious is a book about inventors and cars. Uh, I should say first that I'm, I'm not a car guy. Um, I, I used to look at car magazines with my, with my father, uh, road and track and, uh, and car and driver, but I basically that was forgotten everything that I learned from those car magazines. And uh, today I'm, I'm, I'm basically the average driver, right? I, I drive a little uh, Honda Fit. I, I expect it to work every time it, I turn the key. I don't have a lot of patience for weirdness or radical design. Uh, I, I just expect it to work. Um, at the same time, paying for gas is is not fun. And I think now, when you when you go to the to the gas station, you have this knowledge that when you fill your gas tank, you are degrading the environment by degrees. You know, you're putting 20 pounds of carbon into the atmosphere for every gallon of gas you burn, and I I feel I feel guilty about that. There's a there's a guilt there, and so um, you know I, I am interested in, in more fuel efficient cars. And when I when I started reporting the story in, in 2010, um, 
basically I, I saw a uh, article in the local newspaper in, in Philadelphia about a team of high school students at an inner city high school who had an after school club making uh, hybrid cars. And I read in the article that they were enrolled in a contest to win $10 million to make a super efficient 100 mile per gallon car and that they had already beaten a team from MIT. And so when you read an article like that, you make a phone call. And so I called the manager of the team. She invited me down to the garage. And as soon as I walked in the garage, I knew that I had stumbled onto something uh, very cool. You know, it was in a lot of ways the garage was uh, like something out of the 1950s. You know, there was there were uh, all these dusty racks of parts, and there was a, a, a an ancient sign that said all sh all shorts and skirts must be worn knee length. And uh, at the same time, there was this archaic archaic feel. There were also these two um, very futuristic looking hybrids of completely original design. Um, and uh, the more time I spent there, I kept going back, and the more time I spent there, the more I, it just seemed to me like um, the idea of the contest was completely legitimate and valid. The idea was that the major automakers weren't really doing anything big about fuel efficiency. They had kind of dipped their finger in the waters with electric cars like the Chevy Volt and the Nissan Leaf, but they weren't committing in a big way. Um, you know, and I started wondering why that was. Why weren't cars more fuel efficient? You know, the Model T got about 21 miles to the gallon, and 100 years later, the average new car got 21 miles to the gallon. So, so what happened? And that's when I that's when I started hanging out with the uh, with the team from Philly, and through them, I learned more about this um, $10 million prize, the the Automotive X Prize for a super efficient car. The idea of which was really to, um, you know, to give the little guy a chance. The big guys had already had their chance. Uh, you know, the, uh, General Motors had gone bankrupt, uh, Chrysler. And in a broader sense, you know, this was 2010. Big elite institutions in America had, had really let us down. And here was a contest that seemed to uh, champion the little guy. You know, they explicitly said, we don't care who you are, uh, uh, what you've done before, where you went to school. All we care about is the quality of the car. Um, and that appealed to me, this, this kind of contest that would champion the little guy. You know, maybe there was some, someone out there in a garage uh, who, had, who had some idea, maybe a crazy idea, but an idea with merit, and this was their chance to uh, prove it to the world. Is there a point when you knew that you had more than just maybe, just what, maybe one long-form story, that you had something that was definitely book-worthy? It's probably when I met a guy named Oliver Kuttner, um, Sometimes you meet these people, and uh, there's a moment. There's a moment when you get hooked, right? Uh, you go in thinking it's it's going to be a story, and then you you realize that it's something bigger. And for me, that really that really starts with character. Um, you know, there's a moment when all you want to do is spend more time with this person and learn more and more about their work and why it matters and and why they do it. Um, I'm sure you can relate to this, Matt, right? Like your, your horseshoe pitcher story. Yeah. There's, that, there's that moment where you describe his bag of horseshoes resting against the washing machine, right? And inside are all these horseshoes with the blue paint that's faded from where they've knocked against the horseshoe post for all these years. Right. And I, I, don't, I don't know, like was, for you, was that, was that the moment when you're like, I, I, I'm in? <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, that, um, that, that's the Alan Francis piece, the one that I wrote for the dispatch. And yeah, he was he was phenomenal when I first met him, and I knew that I was that I just wanted to hang out with him more, uh, and just like pitch horseshoes with him in his backyard, um, and yeah. let him t 
teach me how to pitch horseshoes. So. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you just want to be there with that person. And, and for, for me, uh, in Ingenious, the guy was Oliver Kutner. He's a, a real estate uh, developer from, from Virginia, uh, German-born, uh, fiery, fleshy, uh, kind of a mad German um, and just, just a, really a force of nature. He's one of these, one of these incredible salesmen who can, who can hook you for life if he just gets two minutes of your unfocused attention. And I've always had sort of a soft spot, uh, for people like that. And, uh, I remember the first day that I went to Oliver Kuttner's w- workshop in Virginia, uh, one of the first things he did was he, he, he told me to hold out my hand and he put a lug nut in my hand and, and he like beamed at me, expecting that I would I would uh, I would get the significance of this lug nut, and it just looked like a lug nut. But um, he told me it was a sixty five dollar lug nut. You know, a lug nut is like the most humble car park there is. It holds a wheel onto a car, and and uh, and and Oliver he just wouldn't stop grinning about this lug nut. And um, and uh, I eventually learned that the lug nut is kind of the kernel of his entire philosophy. Oliver is a guy who uh, wanted to win the X Prize by making a car that was extremely light. Extremely light and extremely aerodynamic and so light that you could literally push it across the floor with your thumb. Um, and and I, just, I just remember myself holding the lug nut and looking at him with this look in his eye and, and thinking that this guy has been waiting for uh, decades for someone to come and, um, and take him seriously and listen to his ideas and, um, you know, everything that he was telling me seemed completely legitimate. Lightness, aerodynamics, it was all very um, ungadgety and, and cool to me. It was all very basic, you know, second law of motion. The less, less uh, mass, uh, the less force you need to accelerate it. And, uh, you know, it's a cardinal virtue of transportation going back to the, to the dog sled and the covered wagon. And it seemed to me like, like not only had Oliver hit on something uh, very fundamental, but I could just tell talking to the guy that he would um, he would destroy his entire life to win this contest. And uh, once I once I figured that out, I, I knew that I needed to spend as much time around him as possible. Yeah, there are those people that you come into contact with, with when you're a reporter who are just so enthusiastic and they just love what they do so much. And especially those people who have never gotten the chance to talk about what they love. Um, that as soon as you show up, they're they that they're going to be so happy that then you just as a reporter you want to be around them. Yeah, well, you know they they've been they've been waiting uh, for to some degree. You know, I mean people people love to tell their stories, and uh, Oliver I think was a guy who had been he had been stockpiling big thoughts for years and years, and he had no place to put them. Mm-hmm. And suddenly a reporter was there holding a tape recorder in, in front of his face. And it was like everything was coming out at once. It was like a fire hose. It was, you know, I mean, I remember there was a moment where he was, he was talking about uh, the price of copper. And then he was talking about why people ride so many bicycles in China. And then he was jumping back to another topic. And I had no idea. I was really confused uh, when, I, when, I was, when I was first hanging out with him. And I think that's a hallmark of this kind of reporting is that the first meeting with somebody is just going to be overwhelming um, and confusing. But you, you take as much string as you can. You sort it out later. Um, the key thing is just making that connection with uh, with a source, with a subject, and like you said, um, just finding somebody like that. It's a gift. It's a gift when you do. And uh, I remember driving home from Virginia 
uh, just convinced that there was there was a book. That was Jason Fagone talking about his book Ingenious, a true story of invention, automotive daring, and the race to revive America. The book is now on sale. We've linked to it on our website. You can download Gangry the podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashton University and is a production of the Journalism and Digital Media Department. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.